data, only the best guests to educate our audience. History, unapologetically honest conversations. Welcome to Why Pay, the case for reparations. All right, this is uh, episode two of uh, Why Pay podcast. This is Alan Holmes and uh, and my friend Khalil English, uh, the co-host. Um, so we're we're happy to be here. Uh, we have Duke Professor Sandy Darity um, here, who was w- was nice enough to join us. And uh, this episode is called Data with Professor Darity. So we are going to dig into numbers on the wealth gap. We're going to talk about his. Uh, his best-selling book, From Here to Equality, and and just learn from him because he has he has led this, um, I would say, this fight for reparations and done a lot of legwork and a lot of um, worthwhile things to advance the movement. Um, so we'd like to first introduce you, uh, Professor Darity. Would you like to tell our audience anything and just kind of give them a rundown? Uh, no, just um, I'm I'm grateful for the opportunity to to join you on the podcast and to talk about some of the issues that are involved with the racial wealth gap, uh, which is a topic that I've been working on for a long time, and it's a topic that animates the the new book that Kirsten Mullen and I published in April, "From Here to Equality: Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century." That's great. That's great. So we we excited to have you. So we'll get right into it. So the first question we have for you um, is, you know, what are some of the most, you know, shocking statistics connected to the racial wealth gap that, you know, the average person does not know? Um, Because we want you to kind of break a little bit down to our audience because a lot of people aren't aware. Let me start by uh, just offering some information about the magnitude of the racial wealth differential. And and when I talk about wealth gaps, I'm talking about something different from income gaps, uh, where uh, income varies largely on the basis of individual earnings, whereas wealth is contingent upon the net value of people's property, the difference between the value of what you own and what you owe. And uh, wealth is in many respects, uh, a more important indicator of economic security and opportunity uh, because wealth can substitute for income. So in the event that somebody loses a job or they're confronted with a catastrophic illness, uh, if they have uh, a store of wealth available, they'll have a much better opportunity for coping with the the situation at hand. And uh, I think this has become especially evident in the midst of the coronavirus crisis, where uh, people have suffered job loss, where uh, disproportionately black businesses, black owned businesses have closed, uh, where the mortality rate has been higher for blacks than all other groups in the society. So um, wealth is something that, 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 uh, that is critically important in terms of determining economic security and well-being. And so uh, when I start to talk about wealth differences, I just want to be sure that people don't confuse that with income differences. Uh, And the magnitude of the racial wealth gap in the United States is best represented by the fact that the median black household in the United States has $850,000 less, I'm sorry, uh, 
the, the mean black household or the average black household in the United States has $850,000 less in net worth than the average white household. Uh, and this differential is also reflected in the fact that uh, black American descendants of U.S. slavery have about 2.5% uh, of the nation's wealth, although uh, they constitute about 13% of the nation's population. And so uh, one of the things that, that we argue in From Here to Equality is that a primary objective of a reparations plan must be elimination of the racial wealth differential. And that would require an expenditure of somewhere in the vicinity of 10 to $12 trillion to ensure that the black share in the, nation, in nation, in the nation's wealth was comparable to the black share in uh, the nation's population. Now, uh, in terms of some, some striking findings, given that sharp difference, uh, one of the findings that has, has come to light is the fact that um, we can't eliminate this racial wealth gap by eliminating differences in educational attainment. Uh, in fact, uh, in the 2019 data from the Survey of Consumer Finances, uh, black household heads with a college degree have about $20,000 less in net worth than white household heads who never finished high school. In addition, yeah. In addition, blacks working full time have less than half of the net worth of whites who are unemployed. And two parent black families have about 60% of the median net worth of white single parent families. Uh, so why is this the case? It's primarily the case because the major way in which people accumulate wealth is, uh, is through the transmission of advantages and resources across generations. So the more that your parents and your grandparents have to endow you with, the better your own wealth accumulation will be. And there are sharp black-white differences in the capacity of parents and grandparents to provide resources to the younger generations. Wow. I mean, that's, and, and I'm glad you provide us with that information. That is, that's major because I think there's a lot of misconceptions about where we are and how far we've come. And that's, um, that, that, that's huge. So yeah, that, that reminds me of a, like the conversation that Alan and myself had yesterday when I was talking about, uh, someone I know has a pretty successful construction company and he was telling me the story about it and how his, Dad is the one who started the construction company. By the, by the time his father died, his two older brothers and his mother took over the company, which was worth about 850000 And it was in the year 1971 or 72. And it's, it really makes you think about, okay, what would it have been like if my father would be able to have a construction company be successful through the sixties and get to a certain point to where it could be inherited by the sons and be, you know, made to be a billion dollar company. And I think a lot of people don't realize, like you said, uh, professor, that it's usually a lot of steps that build up to where you are. You're standing on the shoulders of the people who came before you. So you might be able to perform very well, but if you're the person who started a construction company versus so the you know, being a third in your generation at the same company, it makes a really, really big difference. So now instead of trying to get $2,000, 
you're walking into something that's worth 800000 in 1971. And not taking anything away from the, the gentleman, very hard worker, very smart guy. But there definitely is a lot of people, uh, black people, especially, you know, American, American black people who just didn't have that opportunity to have those kind of businesses in Kentucky and, and, and Georgia and places like that. So, you know, those are the type of things I think you address a lot in your book that shows why we're at that position. And it's not just a, an individual performance. Yeah, I think people frequently talk about uh, self-made persons. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, you know, virtually no one is entirely self-made. Uh, even some of our uh, most successful uh, billionaires who actually did not come from enormous wealth, they generally came from families that were financially comfortable. Uh, it's very unusual to have a story of somebody who truly goes from rags to riches, which is yeah. the, the great American myth. Um, and one of the things that people frequently forget is uh, at the time that black Americans emerge from slavery and are denied the 40-acre land grants that were promised as restitution for their years of bondage, at the very same time, the federal government was providing 160-acre land grants to upwards of one and a half million white families in the western part of the United States under the Homestead Acts. And uh, those grants have had the long-term effect of providing uh, uh, significant uh, resources and benefits to approximately 45 million living white Americans. Uh, and so that's the beginning of the racial wealth gap, actually. Uh, yeah. But it also uh, demonstrates that it, the beginnings of the racial wealth gap were anchored on somebody getting a leg up through the federal government's provision of land. Uh, so, you know, again, it's, 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 no one is entirely self-made, uh, but a lot of people are less self-made than others and frequently less self-made than they believe they are. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Because it's funny you bring that up. Because I was telling Khalil uh, when I had posed a question on Twitter some months ago about, I said uh, racial wealth gap Twitter. I said how many of you all you know needed some help or got a leg up when it came to getting that down payment money for getting a house? And it was the most engaging thread I've ever seen on Twitter, where I had a guy who said that his grandfather gave him a hundred thousand dollars cash just as an inheritance. You know, you, I had another guy who said that his parents sold him their old house because they had numerous homes. They sold he and his wife uh, one of the houses that they had significantly undervalued, you know, so they could have a leg up so they could get a home for far less than it was actually worth. And then I had other people who said that, you know, they got no help, nothing because, you know, they, their parents didn't have the money. And it was striking to see. Normally, it was the black people who responded to me who said they got no help. And it was the white people who, you know, they admitted that they got assistance and help. And I think that's kind of interesting that that's connected to the issue with home ownership is that you have to come up with the money for down payment. Who is going to provide you the money? You either get it inherited, you get help, or you don't. And so that, that was just an interesting thing. So. But yeah, no, this this is good. But um, 
Well, I, I want to go back to Khalil's comments about yes. business ownership because that's also consistent with this kind of pattern of transmission of resources. Uh, you know, Khalil, you mentioned uh, a gentleman who who you know who's actually essentially received the business from from his father or or from his. Uh, well, yes, from his father, apparently. And uh, we do know uh, from some of the research that we've done is uh, that one of the things that we know from some of the research we've done is um, whites are much more likely to acquire a business by it being given to them as a gift or an inheritance. And they are much more likely to have acquired a business by purchasing an existing business outright with the resources that they already hold. In contrast with most black entrepreneurs whose businesses become, uh, their, their businesses are created through them starting it up in the first place with whatever resources they have access to. But they're much less likely to acquire an existing business, either through their own capacity to buy it or through uh, receiving it as a gift from from a relative. Definitely, yeah. That's uh, you know, not to harp on it for too long, but uh, I read uh, Elon Musk's uh, autobiography a few years back, and I noticed it didn't. You know, it was kind of posing it as kind of a rags to riches story. But I, I noticed it shows that he graduates from the University of Philadelphia. And then the next part it just shows that he's in a three-bedroom apartment in the Bay Area, able to eat Denny's three times a day. And I remember thinking, I don't know anybody who got out of college who could afford <laughs> to eat Denny's three times a day and also purchase an apartment on the Bay Area, Bay Area. Working on your own <laughs> idea. So it was like, okay, how do you get the apartment? How do you have the money to buy the food? How do you have the computing equipment to do what you're doing? How do you have these venture capitalists showing up at your house when you haven't produced anything before? And that's kind of like the first time I really started to understand there's a difference here, you know, because you're always told, well, this person just really liked the computer and they just practiced a whole bunch and they just made this huge, you know, uh, Microsoft Windows and, they're a billionaire and you don't hear that, oh, this guy actually, you know, like with Bill Gates, his dad is an intellectual property lawyer. You have connections with IBM. You have access to some uh, programming machine that only 12 other people in the country have access to. So how is anybody else going to compete with that if you're not even allowed to even know the subject exists for the first 20 years that it's there, you know? And, and, and I'm glad that when your book came out and just to see the other information that you put out there to kind of corroborate that, because I felt like I was going crazy when I would bring it up to people and say, you know, I was just noticing every single billionaire had someone that was there who was in a good enough position to either protect their assets legally or to, like you said, give them the inheritance or give it, give them money as a gift and have a network where they're not getting preyed upon by the vultures out there who will steal the business. You know, yeah, that's a major, a major idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is which is not to say that these are not hardworking people or gifted yeah. people, but it is to say that they had a trampoline below them. Oh yes, yes, yeah, that's for sure. And, and, and I definitely acknowledge like these guys are extremely intelligent. I mean, you're still not yeah. going to do that. It's kind of like if you're, you know, Stephen Curry's dad played basketball as well, but you still got to make the three point shots to get on the court. You know, so 
but it does help when your dad already plays in the NBA and knows exactly how to train you when you're four years old. You know, so that's still a difference between him having a dad who was in the NBA versus him having the same said dad working as an accountant somewhere. You know, yeah. But uh, I kind of wanted to uh, uh, change pace a little bit. You know, uh, not to talk too much about myself, but I, I'm uh, an electrical engineer. I wound up going back to school later in life. Uh, I started about 32 to pursue this degree, and uh, I realized how difficult. STEM subjects are. So what I see, you know, your accomplishments, and I see that you get you get into Brown University. Well, what year was that? Brown mm-hmm. University in 74 and MIT in 78. That sounds like the most amazing accomplishment I've ever heard of. Actually, I'm older than that. <laughs> I started I started at Brown in 1970 and I started oh. at MIT in 1975. Okay. So so I finished at MIT in 1978. Oh, all right. Yeah, yeah. of course. Yeah, you got the degree. Okay, yeah. it shows it here. Yeah. yeah, so, you know, when I went to school, I got a lot of help based off of YouTube and things like that. I'm just wondering, as a black man growing up, in, you know, in America with that climate, how were you just – what – hurdles that you have to go through you know just talk a little bit about how it was to be able to be that accomplished and to be that focused and uh, you know uh, accomplish those kind of goals because I think it would be good for other people to hear that because there's a lot of us who actually would like to kind of repeat the, you know the moves you made I have a brother Gabron who's an economist as well and I kind of got him into it by talking about you and how you you know changing the entire landscape he just finished his degree at the University of Colorado Springs and yeah, he would like to go further into, you know, maybe do a master's and be able to do more. And I, I think it'd be good for people like him and people who want to go to school to kind of hear from someone who was able to accomplish this stuff when there was no YouTube and you had to just backpack to the library and do all those things. So could you just talk a little bit about that? Well, I guess, uh, you know, since there weren't alternatives, uh, we didn't feel bad about going to the library. <laughs> <laughs> library was uh, what 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 do the folks call these things now? The library was a safe space most of the time. <laughs> but um, no, I I I think uh, my personal story. I think there was a lot of serendipity. Uh, you know, I. Both of my parents were highly educated, even though they came from families where their parents were not. So um, they were the generation that really displayed what we refer to as upward mobility. And so I was a beneficiary of that. I, uh, I think I'm somebody who's very committed and determined and worked hard. Uh, but I had a bit of a springboard also. Uh, in terms of really having a lot of opportunities to get quality education. And for the most part, uh, you know, I was fortunate to generally be exposed to teachers who, uh, who, who respected my capabilities rather than trying to destroy them, as many, many young people, uh, the situation many, many young people are faced with. Uh, but I, I think things always became more challenging the further up I moved the on the educational ladder in terms of having to deal with uh, 
faculty members who believe that black people were cognitively inferior. Um, and so that, that was really, that's been the biggest burden. Uh, and it's been a burden that's carried over into my professional career, where in some sense, if you are a black academic, you always have to be proving yourself. Um, and so there's, there's a stress factor that comes into play. Uh, but I made the decision a long time ago that there are uh, some vital goals that need to be pursued, and I could possibly help pursue them in my position as an academic economist. And so, um, so I've gone, gone forward in that direction. But yeah, I mean, uh, in any, any, uh, any individual who, particularly a black American descendant of U.S. slavery, which I am, uh, any individual from that point of origin in American society is going to be confronted with a set of obstacles that don't face other people. And, uh, you know, so the question is whether or not we've got the resources to help us get around those obstacles. And I think generally I've been fortunate enough to have the kind of support that's helped me, helped me do that. That's great. Um, so Professor Daddy, we're going to uh, go to another question here um, about the misconceptions and misunderstandings that people have about reparations. Because I know you look, me, you, and Khalil are all on Twitter, and we see some of the most random uh, top, uh, posts about reparations. People say, oh, well, my father wasn't a slave owner. I'm not a slave owner. Everything that you can think of. So we want you to clear up and assist in clearing up, like we always clear up every day, the misunderstandings about why reparations is necessary and what it's connected to in totality. So my feeling is uh, reparations for, for Black Americans who have uh, at least one ancestor who was enslaved in the United States is vital because there's an unpaid debt. Uh, and, and I mentioned a a few minutes earlier that in the aftermath of the Civil War, uh, the formerly enslaved were promised 40-acre land grants as restitution, and that, that promise was not kept. Uh, and so that's the foundation for the debt that has remained unpaid for 155 years. And that, that debt has had ramifications to the present moment, as, as I indicated, at the same time that the 40 acres were being denied, uh, significant numbers of white Americans, including recent immigrants to the United States, were receiving 160-acre land grants in the western part of the United States to complete the nation's uh, colonial settler project. Uh, and so... Um, so that's the origins of the racial wealth differential. It, it spans multiple generations in terms of its impact, where it accumulates in the existing racial wealth differential. And to the extent that the existing racial wealth differential is a consequence of these grievous injustices that were associated with slavery and its immediate aftermath, where nothing was provided to the formerly enslaved, uh, then this is a claim. Uh, a claim, a social justice claim that has to be made uh, to, to pay a debt that is outstanding. Uh, so I, I think that that's kind of the philosophical or moral basis for reparations. Uh, there's a host of objections that people have raised, including the one that you talked about where yeah. 
Yeah, the, I, it's we kind of now we associate that line of argument with Mitch McConnell, but it's widely used, um, which is to say that there's no one living who was a slave or is a slave, and there's no one living who was a slave owner, uh, which ignores the full case for reparations which is not predicated exclusively on the harms of slavery, but it's on the cumulative effects of slavery, a hundred years of legal segregation in the United States, coupled with wave upon wave of white massacres that destroyed uh, what accumulate, what wealth blacks had accumulated in many of the communities that displayed a greater degree of prosperity. Uh, this, these massacres involved uh, loss of black lives, it involved the destruction of black property, and then in many instances, the outright appropriation of black property by the white terrorists, uh, so that what had been owned by black people became the property of white people and included and, and added to their amassed wealth. Um, so, um, and then subsequent to the civil rights legislation, we still have mass incarceration, we have police executions of unarmed blacks. Uh, we have ongoing discrimination in housing credit and employment markets. Uh, so the case for reparations is not exclusively centered on, on events that took place before anybody living today had experienced them. It's also based upon uh, the subsequent nearly century-long period of, uh, of Jim Crow in the United States, as well as ongoing atrocities. And so, uh, and, and there's a number of us who were living uh, during the Jim Crow period who are still around, right, uh, on, on both sides of the fence. Uh, and uh, so, so Mitch McConnell in particular, yeah, was very much alive during the, yeah. uh, the last the last years of the Jim Crow period, as as I was, uh, you know, the first ten years of my life was under legal segregation in the United States. So, um, so, um, so you know, of course, you know, if you wait long enough, there won't be any of us still living. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, but as we say in the in the in, in, in from here to equality, a national act of procrastination is not a justification for ignoring the debt. Oh, absolutely very well worded yes well all right gets back to my question it was my turn uh so i was going to ask you about what happens first do you come up with an idea or something that you want to find out information about and then you go to find data and information to to find out you know a, a certain particular conclusion or do you kind of just do some type of data mining and you just wind up seeing patterns uh, uh, that turn up out of nowhere and they kind of guide you into what you're going to be focusing on? Like, how how do you come up with an idea or a topic to research for? Wow, that's a tough question because I, I, I don't know that I typically interrogate my own approach to uh, to research or, or, you know, interrogate how I go about uh, engaging in, I guess, what we might call the creative act. Uh, I, I just really haven't thought much about that. So that's, that's an interesting <laughs> question. I do know that the topics of interest are something that's been long, long, uh, 
that, that has a long pattern of motivation for me, stemming from my early childhood years where I have long been concerned about trying to understand why some people have a lot and other people have a little. And also, I've always had the, uh, had the notion uh, embedded in my thinking that the explanation for why some people have a lot and others have a little is not a consequence of the people who have a little being dysfunctional or badly behaved or immoral or, uh, or having the wrong cultural background. Uh, I've always thought that it had something to do or had to be connected with historical processes of power and, uh, and the acquisition of resources through the exercise of power at some point. Um, and so, um, so I've, I've long had an interest in trying to understand inequality, trying to understand poverty, and they're not the same things. Um, and so I think it's been that kind of concern that shaped the types of questions that I've tried to explore. Uh, but, you know, how I go about exploring it exactly, whether it's doing it deductively or inductively, I think it varies. I think it flips back and forth. Uh, you know, it's, it's not always the same. But, uh, but I've long been centrally focused on trying to better understand uh, why inequality operates in the world and what we can do about it. All right. That's good. That's good. So, Professor, we're going to uh, have one last uh, question for you. We want to just really want to highlight from here to equality this book that you wrote. Um, I, I, I want to thank my friend Khalil for introducing me to to, to your work and, and the book. I, I bought the book and read it. And it just was an eye opener in terms of of uh, how little progress we've made, and I guess how many times we've been waiting and hoping for equality, but the bar seems to be moved further and further away. It just never seems to happen. So we want, I guess, you to just get, get, give a snippet to the audience of uh, of your book or what you think people could gain from it if they read it and kind of how it's helped to move the conversation forward on reparations. So the book is co-authored with my wife, Kirsten Mullen, who is a folklorist. And that's important because we thought it would be important to have stories that are built into the book in such a way that we could really illuminate particular historical periods. Um, uh, in such a fashion that people could really uh, connect with the connect with the narratives, um, but uh, I think that there were several objectives that we've attempted to achieve in the book that I don't think uh, have been replicated in other studies. Uh, certainly not in the same way. Uh, we try to talk about two tiers of misperceptions, because you all raised the question of misperceptions. Uh, and one tier of misperceptions concerns uh, people's beliefs about why there is a racial wealth disparity in the United States. And, uh, and we try to, to demystify that. And then the other set of misperceptions is associated with what people believe about slavery, the Civil War, and the Reconstruction period. And we try to to demystify that also. Uh, 
So that's one of the, the major tasks of the book is, is to set the record straight in some sense. Uh, another task is to actually introduce an explicit plan for, uh, for the um, execution of a reparations program in the United States. Um, and we do that in the 13th chapter. Uh, another task is to take on a set of arguments that people customarily make in uh, in, in reaction to uh, the call for reparations for Black American descendants of U.S. slavery. And in Chapter 12, we list a set of standard complaints that people often advance, and then we uh, we respond to them. Um, Another thing that I think is somewhat unique to our book is the uh, is the demonstration that the Civil War didn't actually have to take place for slavery to be brought to an end. So in the fifth chapter of the book, we talk about the policy of compensated emancipation, which would have been uh, a practice of actually paying slaveholders to emancipate their their human property. Um, and if that had been done, if the Southern slaveholders had agreed to that, then the Civil War would not have had to take place at all. Uh, and so uh, to the extent that they refused, then the responsibility, the burden of the cost of the Civil War must be borne fully by the folks who formed the Confederacy of the United States. Absolutely. The Confederate yeah. States of the United States. The Confederate States of America. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, now that's and, interesting. In the book, when you talk about how many times President Lincoln attempted to uh, to negotiate with the Southern states, I mean, I, I feel like it was like nine or ten times. Right, into 1865, which was the year in which the war actually ended. He was still trying to negotiate an arrangement for immense uh, compensated emancipation. But I think he, he first started to articulate the idea as early as 1850 or so. Uh, but yeah, uh, we wouldn't necessarily have had to have the Civil War had the, uh, the folks who formed the Confederacy agreed to compensated emancipation. Um, and then I, I think one of the other things that we attempt to accomplish in the book is to explore precisely how the racial wealth gap was developed uh, once we, once we uh, debunk the, the conventional arguments, we begin to explore exactly what the story is about how racial wealth differentials came about in the United States. And we start with the failure to provide the formerly enslaved with the 40 acres at the uh, same time the Homestead Acts are giving substantial tracts of land uh, to, to white Americans. Uh, but we carry that through to the present by looking at a variety of policies that supported white wealth accumulation while either, uh, while either they were depriving or denying black Americans of wealth accumulation opportunities. Uh, I would like to ask, just if you could give me a 30-second response, which you could probably give me hours on this, but <laughs> what do you think, being a, you know, a, a great economist, what do you think about where the economy is headed, just in general, right now? Well, I'm terrible at prediction, but the economy you know, has to be in a, an extremely bad way at the moment just because of the health crisis. Uh, it's the health crisis that has created the downturn that we're now experiencing. Uh, now, the severity of the downturn has been far more extreme 
for for black folks than it has been for many many uh, members of other communities. I, I think the Native American community has been hammered uh, and, and ha- hammered to a similar degree as the Black American community. But uh, but the economy, un- unless some steps are taken, if we're not just going to wait until we actually have an effective vaccine against the coronavirus, uh, and you know who knows when that might be. Um, then unless uh, massive steps are taken to bolster uh, economic conditions in the United States, uh, then we're in a a very bad situation. Yeah, well, listen, thank you for that, Professor Darity. I'm glad glad you you gave us that summary. We're glad you came on for this episode, and we hope to continue this discussion again for the audience. Go by From Here to Equality. Duke Professor Sandy Darity. Hopefully we can have you on again and we just got to keep pushing until we we move forward with reparations. Yeah, let me me add, From Here to Equality is by Duke Professor Sandy Darity as well as two geniuses together. That's that's awesome. Yeah. All right with that. Thank you for your time, Professor. Yes, thank you very much. Deeply appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. All right, bye-bye.